Thanks, Carol. I love this musical Dickerson family. Tomorrow morning, their son's gonna be on the Today Show with Kathy Lee and Hoda, yeah. Unbelievable. The Lord uh, has blessed you guys in some incredible ways, some, some gifted people for sure that we are blessed to have in this church, in our congregation. We do have a lot going on in the life of our church. Uh, Richard and I both got to spend some time with, with Clay and Laurie Carpenter. Uh, as you heard Bob pray for, for them as they grieve the, the loss of his mother, Karen, who, who passed away yesterday morning. Um, she was at a, a, a retirement facility, uh, Summerfield in Brentwood. So we need to extend our sympathies to the, the family, uh, the Carpenter family, who's going through this tough time for sure. I don't know how people go through times like that without a church family, right, to support them and to love them and encourage them. So they talked about how much the, the Hickson class, the Young Families class has meant to them during this time, and uh, it's true that they've really surrounded them as, as the body of Christ. I love that. So this morning, we're going to continue our series on a changed perspective, walking through the book of Acts. And I hope you're doing our, our, our daily Bible readings with us. We have bookmarks that Andy's made that are at the Welcome Centers at the South Lobby and in the North Lobby. It's also online on our website, and there's also apps you can get uh, that, that will walk you through the, the reading plan that we're doing. This morning, we finished the book of Job in the Old Testament. What an amazing book of wisdom and perspective that you get from Job. But we're also reading a New Testament passage every day. And for this month, we've been in the book of Acts. And we talked last week about how Acts is really not the Acts of the Apostles. It's really the Acts of God through his people. It's more specifically the Acts of the Holy Spirit who has come to dwell in God's people in a whole new kind of powerful way. And in all of the passages that we're looking at for this month, we'll see how a person or a, a group of people, as we see today, have a changed perspective on something. They, they get a new enlightenment. They get a new understanding of reality because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changes the way they see things. Last week, we saw how the gospel changed everything for a young ambitious Pharisee, a zealous guy named Saul of Tarsus, who had a life-changing encounter with the risen Christ, and, and scales fell from his eyes because his eyes were made new. It wasn't just a new lens through which he was seeing the world, it was an entirely new organ. His eyeballs became redeemed by the blood of Christ, and therefore he was a new creation. And I told you how that that African church planner, John Rushahanya, had told me, you know, we don't need a new lens to see the world through. We need new eyes. We need to be redeemed from our heads to our toes. We need to be made new so we can then truly have a changed perspective. So today, we're going to look at how a, a whole group of, of pagans, a group of, of Greek uh, polytheists, had a changed perspective on who God is, on, on who really is in charge of the world, and who is not in charge of the world. We've been reading through this, this Acts and seeing how the gospel spreads. The whole story of Acts is how the, the gospel starts in Jerusalem. We talked about these concentric circles. We have that slide, Mark, with the concentric circles where it starts in Jerusalem, where Jesus is crucified and where he's resurrected and where the disciples begin their ministry and guys like Peter say, oh, this is what Jesus was talking about at Pentecost when he said that the Comforter would come. And he preaches this amazing sermon, and 3,000 people are added to the church that day. 
And then he and James basically begin to be the leaders of this young church in Jerusalem. But of course, persecution intensifies. The Jewish authorities in Jerusalem are not happy at all about this new sect of believers who call themselves the way. So they begin to, to, to murder them, to round them up and kill them. So what happens? They flee, of course, into Judea and Samaria, the next circles, and there they proclaim the gospel. There they proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. And then eventually to the ends of the earth, which is what we're going to see in our story today from Acts 14. So this is the pattern of growth that the gospel follows into all the world. And then in the book of Acts, we see how in chapter 9, Saul gets called by the risen Christ to go to the nations, to be the apostle to the Gentiles, who were formerly outside the covenant people of God, but by the cross of Christ have now been brought near to the living God. By the way, that includes you and me. If you're not Jewish here, then you would be in those groups of Gentile people. So the story of Acts really shifts around chapter 12 from Jerusalem being the center in this ministry to the Jews. It now moves to the Gentiles and to the nations. James is killed by King Herod in chapter 12. And, and from that time on, the, everything shifts out into the world. Paul is kind of the central figure now. Saul starts going by his Roman name, Paul, after this point. And the whole base of operations for this young church moves north from Jerusalem to Antioch, into Syrian Antioch, where they can operate a little more freely from persecution. And the great man of God, Barnabas, he's this dignified apostle in the church in Jerusalem. He's sent to Antioch by the church in Jerusalem, and he gets there and he's pleased at how healthy and, and vibrant the church is in Antioch. So he goes over to Tarsus and finds Saul and says, it's time to, to start doing this ministry thing. Let's go. And so he takes Saul back to Antioch with him, and they stay there for a year discipling the young church, and, and everything's going great. But you know, stable is the worst place for a church to be, right? You got to make changes. You got to take risks. So the church says, you know what? This has been great having you guys here, but it's time for you to go. It's time for you to go change the world. And so they lay hands on Paul and on Barnabas, and they say, you're going to the ends of the earth now. We've done the whole Judea thing. We've done the Samaria thing. Now it's time for you go, to go to the ends of the earth. So here's the route they took. Here's the, the map. The, the Acts is really big on geography. You know that, that Paul had these three missionary journeys. This is Paul's first missionary journey here in Acts 14. They start, and you can't really see it probably, but you know, Syria is over there on the right, and, and Antioch's up there uh, in the corner, uh, right on the Mediterranean coast. That's kind of the base of operations from where they left. So they sailed from Antioch to the island of Cyprus, and they had an amazing ministry in Cyprus. One of the, the proconsuls, one of the head of the, the government in the town of Salamis up in the northern part of Cyprus, becomes a believer. He's a, a government official, and he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. They have great success. Paul starts to really hit his stride as a preacher. He's really just seeing people converted uh, by, the, by the droves. And then they sail north from Cyprus up into this region where Perga is, and then they go to Pisidian Antioch. This is a different Antioch. And there, again, they find great success. People start becoming believers. They start putting their faith in Jesus Christ. But of course, persecution abounds. The more people who become Christians, the more the authorities crack down. 
on Paul and Barnabas' ministry. So they attempt to stone them, to, to throw rocks at them until they are dead. So they flee from Pisidian Antioch and they go southeast to Iconium. And the same thing happens there. People follow them from Antioch and begin to persecute them. So they have to flee Iconium. And that's when they go to this little town called Lystra. Now, Lystra was not a very Jewish town at all. We know from archaeological evidence that there was no synagogue in Lystra. Paul's MO, the way he operates every time he comes to a new town, is he goes where? First thing, to the synagogue. Because these are monotheists. These are people who are the special called out people of God. All he has to do is, is show them from Isaiah. All he has to do is show them from Joel 2. All he has to do is show them how from Genesis 3.15 that the, the gospel has been flowing throughout the Old Testament and is now fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's kind of an easy way for Paul to operate. Well, they get to Lystra, he's got nowhere to go. So they go to the marketplace and they're just speaking about Jesus Christ. And let's pick it up in, in, in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 52. When they're leaving uh, Iconium, this is what happens. The, 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 the disciples there are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And then go to the next verse, 14.1. Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And they stayed there in Iconium for a long time amidst persecution. Do you see a theme here with persecution? Every time the church experiences persecution, what happens? The church grows like crazy. The study that we're doing on Wednesday night, Russell Moore's Onward, his book Onward, Russell Moore says the church has always thrived best when it's least like the culture around it. Yikes. That's very true. How much time and energy do we spend trying to be culturally relevant? That's not the point. The church has always thrived best in the midst of persecution, when it's against the culture, when it's kind of strange and outside the mainstream. That's when the church really is the church and thriving. So let's pick it up now in Lystra. These are Greek-speaking Gentiles who, who also have like native dialects. They're kind of backwoods Hellenists who live in Asia Minor. Let's pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 14. They're talking about the gospel in the marketplaces. And now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. You know, I was thinking, I was reading this verse on Monday, preparing for this sermon, and we had several folks in the hospital who had problems with their feet. Jim Naftal and Jim Baker and others. And I was thinking about how they must feel about their, their, their crippledness at this point and how the Lord is working as the great physician, as Jehovah Rapha, the healer in their lives. So this man had never walked from the time he was born. He was crippled. Verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking. Paul's always speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that this crippled man had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began walking for the first time in his life. There's a lot in verse 9, isn't there, about Paul's new vision. It says Paul looked intently at the man. 
The word in Greek means to look very closely, to examine. It's, it's translated in the King James Bible as steadfastly beholding. Paul's got these new eyes, and he's seeing people the way God sees them. So often you and I look at people just kind of surfacey, right? We look at people just on the outside. God looks at the heart. Paul is looking intently at this crippled man. And then it says that he sees something spiritual. He sees something as it really is. He looks beyond the surface. Paul looks beyond the presenting issue. I'm learning more and more as a pastor that if someone has a problem and they come to me, usually it's not about that, right? It's about something else, right? There's a presenting issue and there's the real issue, right? We have to learn to see beyond the presenting issue to what's really happening. That can only happen with the eyes of faith, with the eyes of redeemed new creation eyes. So he looks at this man on a spiritual level and discerns that this man has faith. He believes that he actually believes that Jesus is able, that Jesus is capable of saving him, both physically and spiritually. So he boldly shouts out, stand up, and the guy springs up, and he walks around. Talk about a life-changing moment for this guy. He'll never be the same, right? He's never walked, and now he's going to go walking around joyfully, gratefully, proclaiming that Jesus Christ has made him well in here and outside as well, all because of the grace of our God in Jesus Christ. And the book of Acts is full of different reactions to the gospel power moving, right? Some people react in faith, like when Peter preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people were added to the church. That happens a lot in Acts. Some people respond in anger. When Stephen is, is proclaiming before the Sanhedrin the good news of Jesus Christ, they begin gnashing their teeth and they're so angry that he would dare say that, that Jesus Christ, who was dead, could possibly be the Son of God, and they, they kill him. You know the story there. Sometimes the way they react is, is through faith in something else besides Christ. That's what happens here in Lystra. They put their faith, they believe that this man was made well supernaturally, but, but they ascribe it to something else besides the living God. Look at verse 11. When the crowds in Lystra saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. This miraculous healing had indeed inspired faith in the bystanders and the crowds who were around, but they, they misplaced their faith. They believed that Paul and that Barnabas were supernatural. And of course, Barnabas, who's this dignified man of God, full of faith, he's Zeus, the father of gods, right? And the father of men. And then Paul, who's this animated, talkative, you know, little guy, he's Hermes, the messenger of the gods, who speaks for the gods, right? So they're speaking in Lyconian. And I, I don't think Paul and Barnabas understood Lyconian because they don't really get what's happening yet. And we know that from historical evidence, there was a, a, an ancient legend in Lystra that, that Zeus and Hermes had hundreds of years before this had visited Lystra. 
and that they were shown great hospitality by the people of Lostra, and therefore they uh, blessed the town in great ways. So the people say, oh, it's, it's Zeus and Hermes again. Let's, let's take care of them. Let's show them great hospitality so they will bless our town. But look at verse 13. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, right, with the crowds. All of a sudden, the, the pagan priests begin to, to bring out these gifts and, and sacrifices for Paul and Barnabas. Now it's clear what's going on. They see that these people have put their faith in them instead of the living God. Look at verse 14. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their garments. That's a sign of mourning, right? A sign of grieving. They're so grieved and upset that these poor, lost and confused and blind people have misplaced their faith so egregiously into men. So they rip up their cloaks as a sign of, of grief. And they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We're no different. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. Speaking of himself, right? This is vain. This is worthless. This is useless. This is just flesh. Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Yet even with these words, verse 18, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Even when they tell the crowds the good news about a real God, a living God, not just some made-up legends, not some made-up stories, not some little statues or something that you go to temples to, to sacrifice to, but when they tell them about the real creator, living God, they still cling to their myths and to their old legends and their, their made-up stories about Zeus and Hermes. And this is such a powerful statement that Paul and Barnabas are, are making here. You know, in their horror at what's happening, that these people would worship them, they cry out, what in the world are you doing, people? We're humans, just like you. We're, we are made of flesh and bone, but we bring you good news. We bring you this good news that our fallen flesh that we all humans live in and dwell in, that in our flesh that gets sick, our flesh that, that dies eventually, our flesh that leads us into temptation constantly, that leads us into sin and destruction constantly, our flesh that condemns us all to the same terminal sickness of sin and hell and death and destruction. This flesh can be redeemed. It can be made new. It can be brought back to the living God by the one true God of the universe. This good news is the gospel, right? 
the word in Greek that's actually used here is euangelizo menoi. It literally means they proclaim the good message. They proclaim the good news. You, you know, E-U means good. Like eulogy is a good word said at the funeral, right? Euphonium is an instrument, like good sound, euphonium. And, and angel, angel, is, is message. It's news, right? The, the messengers, the angels who bring us tidings of great joy in Luke 2. It, it means good message. And euangelizo menoi means we proclaim to you the gospel. We proclaim to you this good message. And it is indeed a good message. It's the best message there is that the living God has forged a way to put back together this broken world. To redeem all that is broken and all that is messed up in our world, including you and me. To make us right with him once again the holy and high and exalted God of the universe. That's the best message there is. And unlike their usual Jewish audiences that Paul and Barnabas have, these Lystrans are a totally pagan people, right, who have no concept of monotheism. They have no background in this, so Paul and Barnabas have to start at the beginning. Genesis 1 and 2, that God's the one who, who made the world. He's the Lord of heaven and earth and the seas and all that is in them. He's the creator God. And, and this living God didn't just leave pagan people to figure it out for themselves. He left a witness, they said, of himself. The rains that provide for their harvests, the, the food that they have, the way that they experience gladness, even though they don't know God, they, when you experience gladness, that itself is a grace of the living God who bestows his love and mercy on all people. Because he, he created them for himself. And he wants us all to be glad and to flourish and to thrive and to have the satisfaction that comes from a good meal. To enjoy our food with gratitude. When you, literally, they're saying, when you eat your food and are glad, that's God. That's God showing you grace and mercy and love in that. That's part of a witness it's more than the idea that God just exists. Clearly, he exists because he made all this, but he's also a good God who wants good things for you. They show that he's, he's the one who created these people, and he wants them to flourish and to know gladness and satisfaction in their souls, which can only come through him. The part of the passage, though, that grips me the most is, is when Paul and Barnabas say, we proclaim the gospel to you that you may turn from these vain things to the living God. Turn to the living God. When I read this, I'm immediately reminded of the, the quote from the great reformer John Calvin, who said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. We just churn out idols one after the other, right? Why is it that our hearts are so prone to wander? Why is it that our hearts are so prone to leave the God that we profess to love above all else? Why is it that, that we, when we're like the people of Lystra, when we get excited about something, that our hearts run to that thing instead of to God? Tim Keller has a, a great book on the subject of idolatry called Counterfeit Gods. I encourage you to pick it up. It's a short book. He says in the introduction, what's an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination 
more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Wow, when I think about that, I have lots of idols. Keller is saying that when we give our our full hearts affections and our whole minds attentions to something other than God, we become idolaters at that moment. When our hearts affections and our minds attentions are given to something else, we become idolaters. You know, I love my job. One of my favorite parts is premarital counseling. You know, I, I just finished Jared and Amy Hagler. They just got married a few weeks ago. Uh, their premarital counseling. But I'm, I'm in the process of meeting with four couples, including Trey and Anna now. Uh, four couples who, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keep clapping. I want to drink some water. Thank you. Um, we have a lot of young couples, if you didn't know that, about Woodmont. Uh, that I'm getting to Joe's here and getting to meet with him and Lindsay as well. Uh, and I love this part of my job. I love meeting with young, engaged couples. They're so excited and full of life. But one thing I always try to tell them off, right off the bat, the very beginning, is that your spouse, your future spouse, can never fulfill you, period. Your spouse, if you're getting married in order to, to become happy, to become satisfied, this will not do it. Only God can do that for you. Your spouse will let you down. Just ask Morgan. <laughs> your spouse will fail you at some point. The living God never will fail you. And so many young couples go into marriage thinking, this is going to fulfill me. This is like Jerry Maguire. They're going to complete me. No, no human being can complete you. That's a lie of culture and a lie of the world. Only God can complete you because our hearts were made for God and they are restless until they rest in Him. That's what St. Augustine said. The reality is, is that only the the living triune creator God of the universe will never leave you or forsake you in any way, shape, or form because he alone is eternally faithful. He alone is eternally good. He alone will never break a promise. And the crazy thing is, is that we all do this, not just engaged couples. We all look to vain things to provide our lives with the kind of meaning or purpose that only God can provide. Keller calls these vain things counterfeit gods. They're just fake. They're not real. He says a counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. They can be good things, but they're not ultimate things, right? When we read the book of Job, family is a good thing. But if you lost your family, would your life be over? Is that what defines you? Is that what you're living for? Is that what gives you purpose and meaning? Because if so, it's an idol. Good things can easily become ultimate things. And the changed perspective that Paul and Barnabas brought into the Lystran community was that only God is God. We're human beings, they say. We're created in the image of God, yes. We're made a little lower than the heavenly beings, yes. We're appointed as vice regents and rulers with God to help take care of creation and help bring it back to redemption, yes. But the reality is that we are just flesh that God has breathed life into. At Ash Wednesday, we we put the ashes on the foreheads and say, from ash you were created, and to ash you will return. Right? That's the truth. But the temptation is for us to act as God acts, right? To be God. 
Contrast the humility that Paul and Barnabas display in Lystra with the horror that they would be considered gods with King Herod in Acts 12. This is the guy who had been persecuting the church so violently in Jerusalem and in Judea. But look at verse 20 in chapter 12. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Whoever you depend on for your sustenance is your God, right? They depended on Herod for food. So who was their God? On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that these robes were sparkly and silver, and they kind of shone like a god. And he took his seat on the throne in his special robes, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people shouted, the voice of a god and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And I love the next verse. But the word of God increased and was multiplied. God's purposes will be fulfilled whether we're a part of it or not. His purposes will advance throughout the world though we may be turned to dust and eaten by worms. Because Herod didn't give God the glory but instead kept it for himself. Yeah, people, you shout. Yeah, I'm a God. That's right. Just let me hear it. That's what he was doing. And, and God immediately struck him down and said, that's not going to cut it. You can't do that. You can't get away with that. Keller says that we are humans. We're not God. When human beings try to become more than human being, to be as gods, they actually fall to become lower than human beings. Isn't that true? We're made in God's image. Let's just be that faithfully to the world. We don't need to be God because he alone is God. He's got that covered. Let him be God. Let him take the wheel, whatever it is. You know, let's just be human faithfully. Because when we try to be God, then we're actually acting lower than our humanity. So let us be who we're meant to be this morning. Fully human. Fully made in the image of God. Let us be reminded of the gospel, though, that makes us humans new from the inside out through the work of the Holy Spirit by the grace of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Let us faithfully then as humans bear God's image rightfully to a world that desperately needs it. A fallen world that doesn't always recognize that God is God and that we are not. Let us not fall into the temptation to try to save ourselves through our own righteousness or through our own good works. Only God can do that. We're all in need of a Savior. What good is it to pray, Lord Jesus, come, if there's nothing you need rescue from? We're all in the same sinking boat of sin and desperately in need of a Savior. I love that we have Celebrate Recovery here. It reminds me and, and everyone else there that we're all in the same boat. No matter where you are socioeconomically, no matter where you are intellectually, there's people from Room in the Inn who are homeless there. There are executives there. They all are in the same boat as we are because of sin. And we all need Jesus Christ. Only by the light of the gospel can we have this changed perspective that God is God and that we are not? Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you for the good news. We thank you for the, the best news ever, that you did not abandon us to figure things out for ourselves, but you left us witness. You've given us 
your written word, your revelation, the wonderful words of life that the choir sang about, your holy scriptures. You've given us a community of faith, including John Calvin and those who've gone before us, who have shown light on the path that we may walk in it faithfully behind them. The saints who have gone before us, many saints in this church, saints that I didn't get to know, saints like Ruth Dyson, saints like, saints like Kathleen Horrell, saints, so many more that have gone through this church and, and lit the path before us that we walk in their legacy now, God. We thank you that you have left us the witness of creation that your goodness has sustained us, that you provided for us in ways that are too wonderful to describe. Help us then to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Help us, we, we know we can never repay you, but I pray that we would live lives that are transformed with a changed perspective, that we would see others as you see them, that we would look intently beyond the presenting issues into how we may be a part of the redemptive process in others' lives. Help us to, to always be aware that only you can satisfy the longings for meaning, for purpose, for happiness, for joy that we all have deep down inside us. Forgive us for turning to vain things when we look for vain things to give us purpose and satisfaction. Forgive us our, our constant idol factory hearts that keep churning out idols one after the other. May we give our hearts to you, O oh God, that you may make them new as well, and that we would cease our idol creation. May we learn to put our trust not in our spouse. May we learn to put our trust not in our friends or family, but may we put our trust wholly in you, that we may walk in your ways, the paths of righteousness that lead to flourishing, that lead to shalom, that lead to peace and prosperity in our lives and beyond. Lord, we love you. We pray all of these things in your high and your holy name, the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know where you are today in your faith. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ for the first time. Maybe you've never trusted him by grace through faith in him that he is Lord and Savior and Master of your soul and of your body and of your mind and your will and your emotions and your gifts and talents. Maybe it's time to, to surrender to him for the first time in your life today. Or maybe you need a church family and you've never been a part of a church family or maybe it's been a long time or, or maybe you're trying to do this whole Christian thing on your own. Christianity is a team sport. You need community just like we all do because it, it makes us better. Community is not pretty, it's messy. It takes a lot of work, and relationships are hard, but we encourage you to be a part of what God's doing here at Woodmont Baptist Church by joining us through membership. Or maybe you've never been baptized. I've, I've talked to some people lately who've never followed Christ's example of, of being immersed in, in water as a powerful symbol of dying to your old self and being raised into a whole new kind of life. If you want to be baptized, we're going to baptize Joe in August. I'm excited about uh, what God's doing through baptism. If you want to talk about that with me, I'd love to talk with you about that as well. Whatever it is that you need to decide this morning, maybe you're convicted of some idols that you've been harboring. Maybe it's something good. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe those are all good things. Maybe it's your church. Maybe it's your doctrine. All good things, but not ultimate things. Things that are ultimately vain. They will perish. 
they will fade away. But the word of our Lord is forever. Let's stand and let's sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus.